And from the book of Acts, chapter 1, starting at verse 1, and in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1092. 1092. Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Whoosh! Just like that. Um, I suppose one of the questions that I've asked myself over the years as I've read this passage is, how would I react if I'd been one of the disciples? Stuart's just given us a very graphic illustration of how they might have reacted. They've been with Jesus for three years. They'd watched his crucifixion and his death on the cross. And then there he was, alive again walking, talking, eating fish, and other things as well, I expect. Before his crucifixion, he'd done nothing to encourage them to think he was going to act like an earthly earthly saviour, riding in with his armies to save Israel, to establish an earthly kingdom. And indeed, in the gospel accounts and in uh, this this. These verses we've read, Jesus is at pains to tell them that his kingdom is not defined by human boundaries. 
But even in the face of Jesus teaching them for three years, of his returning from death, their focus was still locked in the cultural expectations of their day. When they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I wonder, would we be any different? The disciples sometimes seem to be characterized in the Gospels as a bit slow on the uptake. Limited somewhat in their expectations by what they've experienced or what culture dictates. And we read elsewhere in the gospel accounts that Jesus had tried to tell them of his kingdom, raise their expectations, enlarge their vision. In John 3, in answer to Nicodemus, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in John 18, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. But the key for both them, the disciples, and us to move above and beyond the limits of experience comes in verse 8 as Jesus says to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In a week's time, we commemorate another of the church's milestones, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the believers gathered together in Jerusalem, and the birth of the church and its mission of witness as promised by Jesus in verse 4 of our reading. Why did God send us the Holy Spirit? To unite us as believers, to encourage us in prayer, to encourage us in holy living, to enable us to separate right from wrong, to dwell within us. These are just a few of the themes we read of in the Bible, and I'm sure we'll hear more of the work of the Holy Spirit over coming weeks. But today... Let's concentrate on witnessing. To give us power, our passage tells us, but not power that corrupts or dominates or is self-serving, but the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. And so the Holy Spirit is a vital element in our witness, in our mission to spread the gospel both locally and far and wide. We get mission in this church, don't we? We're going to hear more of sole purpose last weekend, later on in the service. And we have regular MAG meetings to support mission, both in this country and overseas. Here's the challenge to each one of us, though. We're not just called to support others in their witnessing and in their mission. We are each one of us called to be witnesses to the gospel of Christ in our communities, our friendships, when we go to the shops or the leisure club, every day, all day, all the time. Luke 19 tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is our mission too, to seek and to save. Not in our own strength, using our own ideas, however good they might seem to be to us, 
but under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, the disciples are told to wait. It is the Holy Spirit that will initiate, shape and form our witness if we are willing to submit to his leadership. We are told in this passage to be witnesses, not to do witnessing, but to be witnesses. And I don't believe we're meant to wait passively, but to involve ourselves in prayer, engaging with the Bible, listening to the Holy Spirit's prompting, giving us God-given opportunities, and active waiting in expectation that we will be called to be a witness. Sometimes I look at others, listen to them speaking or praying or living grace-filled lives, and I think how much better they are at it all. Being a witness to the gospel of Christ, living out their lives for Jesus. But part of this empowering by the Holy Spirit means that we accept how God has shaped us as an individual, formed us in our mother's womb to be just the person he wanted us to be. And he is asking us to be shaped by the work of the Holy Spirit within, to free us from the binding powers of this world. The Holy Spirit empowering us to be the unique and precious witness we were called to be. Without him, we're empty and powerless. That's one of the reasons we're encouraged to pray continually in 1 Thessalonians 5. John Stott says, What the scripture lays upon us is the need for a proper combination of humility and humanity. The humility to let God be God, acknowledging that he alone can give sight to the blind and life to the dead, and the humanity to be ourselves as he has made us. Not suppressing our personal individuality, but exercising our God-given gifts and offering ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness in his hand. In the same way the disciples were limited by their expectations of Jesus to restore the kingdom of Israel within their own understanding, I wonder if we limit the work of the Holy Spirit, reduce it to the levels of expectation to that to which our human brains can understand? Would the disciples have chosen a eunuch to plant the Ethiopian church? Or a persecutor of the believers, Saul, to become one of the greatest missionaries of the early church? And Peter certainly wasn't prepared to eat food that he thought was unclean until the Holy Spirit intervened. Where, I wondered, are my no-go areas? Are my limits because of culture or upbringing? I like to think that I would go to whomsoever God says, but is that really true? As we come to the closing passages of our reading, Jesus' ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father, we hear of an event that no human language can really describe. It's beyond our understanding. No wonder the disciples were left gazing upward. It took the intervention of two men, possibly angels, to remind them that they had a mission. 
There's a chorus that's been around for a while. We sing it here sometimes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And it's good, isn't it, to have those times when we get lost in wonder and worship and praise. And some of you may know I've been to Russia recently to meet and explore fellowship with Russian Christians. And at one such church, now, I don't know if you know much about Russian Orthodox churches, but they do like bling. (laughs) Um, Most of the churches, every, every... inch of wall and ceiling is covered with icons or frescoes Um, and then you add to that mix candles gold um, darkness and it all can feel quite oppressive at times but I'm pleased to report that there are genuine worshipping Christians in Russia and in the Russian Orthodox Church but I was in one such church in Moscow and it just all got too much And I went outside and sat in the garden. And that chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the scriptures that support those words came into mind. And I sat in the garden and just sensed the presence of God. And it was wonderful. It was like an oasis. And I could have sat there forever. And there are times, aren't there, when it's all too easy to get stuck to kid ourselves that we are in worshipping mode, that when we're, that we're worshipping, when really it's our own emotions and desires that drive us. We've clicked into worship mode and we want to stay there, rather than experiencing the reality of true worship before the living God. Yes, we turn our eyes on Jesus Yes, we experience the light of his glory and grace poured out to us. But there's a but. We never sing the verses to that chorus, which was written in 1918. They remind us that we have a mission. The verses, the last two verses say, Through death into life everlasting he passed, and we follow him there. O'er us sin has no more dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Amen.